as Denise and Bobby Joe have pointed out, it's kind of a strange reading for the day. Thinking, this sounds like Christmas time. And don't worry, it's not. It's July. You have 174 shopping days left, so you're still good. Some of you like to plan early. But why are we reading this story? And why today? We're doing a series on the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is this ancient statement of faith that dates back to near the time of Jesus. It's kind of a summary of our faith. It's printed on your bulletin insert there. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and goes on from there. Some of you may have learned it as a child. Maybe you learned it as you were older, you recited it, or maybe it's new to you. But it was a way for the early church to summarize the story of the Bible. It's not everything the Bible says, but it was a way to summarize some of the key beliefs of what we believe. And so it was a way to set things up and to encourage it. And so I think of it as kind of a set of guide rails, a set of guides that go along. But one of the amazing things about the Apostles' Creed is as you read it, each little line, there's something more to unpack. So if you're familiar with computers, it's almost like hyperlinks. You read a little bit of it, and if you click on it, you can dive deeper into the story of the Bible. The Apostles' Creed isn't meant to replace the Bible, but instead what it's inviting us to do is go deeper in to the story and to read what's going on. Or you can think of it maybe, if you're not familiar with computers, it's just a series of bags and there are these key phrases and words, but you can open it up and realize inside each one of those is much, much more. So we started a few weeks ago, we just talked about what it means to believe. And the believe is not just simply what goes on in our head, but belief involves trusting and doing. And so when we go through these phrases, it also requires a response from us. We believe in God, the Father Almighty. That God is relational, that he's a father. And even that word father, we can dive deeper into that or that he's the almighty one, that he's powerful. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He made all that is seen and unseen. And so we can talk about that and we can go deeper into that. And then a few weeks back, we said, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And each one of those words has meaning. That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He's the reigning king. That we're to call him Lord. And so now we come to this phrase, where it says, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And we wonder, in all the things we could talk about in the Bible, in all the things we could talk about in our faith, why those? Because maybe if you read your Bible and you're reading through the stories of Jesus, and so we have four stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four gospels or four stories of the gospel, four stories of the good news, two of them don't mention his birth. Mark and John. And so you think, well, wait a minute. So two of the Gospels don't mention it. Paul doesn't really talk about the virgin birth. And so we think, is it really that important? And so I want us to think about why did it matter for the early church? Why was this so important? It shows up in the Apostles' Creed or one of the other major creeds called the Nicene Creed. Why was it so important to talk about this line? So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. And so Luke is telling the story of Jesus. But he begins... Not with the story of Jesus, but the story of a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest and Elizabeth is his wife. And it says, the story says in Luke chapter 1, it says they're old and they have no children. And when you read that story, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, all of a sudden something should jump into your mind and say, wait a minute. An old couple that's never had children. Or a woman who's wanting to have children and doesn't. Because that story connects to the big story of the Bible. Because the big story of the Bible is what? That God created a good world and people rebelled. And then God has a plan to rescue the world. And that rescue plan comes through the family 
of a man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Well, if we were to turn back our pages of the Bible and go back to Abraham and Sarah, the story of Abraham and Sarah begins with God making a promise to Abraham and telling him, taking him out and telling him to look up into the sky and count the stars or number the sand on the seashore. He says, your descendants are going to be like that. And Abraham at this point is 90 years old. Want to guess how many kids he has at this point? Zero. Zero kids. How many people have kids at age 90? How many want to have kids at age 90? <laughs> and so here he is. And God's telling him this. So, and God goes on and promises him. He says, I'm going to give you a, a, a land to live in. And I'm also going to make you into a great nation with numerous descendants. And Abraham's thinking, there's something wrong here because I don't have any. You see, there's an obstacle to the story. So we have this couple who's childless and it's an obstacle to God's promise, but God gives him a son named Isaac. It becomes a story of promise. And as we read through the Bible, it happens several other times in the story. There's a woman who prays and she's childless and she gives birth to a son and his name is Samson. And he becomes this judge who just lives at a turning point in Israel's history. Or a woman named Hannah who is also childless and she prays to God and God gives her a son who's Samuel and is, becomes this great prophet and is another turning point, anoints the first king of Israel. So the story of the Bible goes on and on several different places where there's a couple that doesn't have a child and part of God's promise involves having a child and God works and works a miracle and gives a turning point. So there's these major turning points in Israel's history. And even this, Isaiah 54 God's talking about the great promise of redeeming Israel. And this is how he says it. He says, sing, barren woman, you have never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, who, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. He goes on. And so what he compares his salvation to is a childless woman giving birth. So now, back to Luke. Luke starts the story and he says, there's this couple's old and wanted a child and they have none. And all of a sudden, if we've been reading our Bibles and are soaked in that story, we say, wait a minute. And the story goes on and an angel shows up. Another big key, something important is happening. And tells Zechariah they're going to have a child. And so now we start thinking, God's doing something again. This is a big part of the story. Something significant is happening. And so now we're primed up. We're thinking, oh, something God is about to do something big. But it gets better. Because then we come to the passage we read. And it says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, this is Luke chapter 1, beginning of verse 20, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, well, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin name was Mary. And so we get the angel comes and gives her greetings. Mary gets troubled. She says, well, what are you, what are you doing here? The angel says, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. And then the angel says, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord what God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So she's going to have a son. The one who will sit on the throne. The one whose name means God saves. He's the Messiah. And so here we have yet another Mary. Mary's like, um, Mary knows that Mary was a young Jewish girl. She knew all these stories. 
She knew the story of Abraham and Sarah. She knew the story of Hannah. She knew all these stories. But something different was going on here. What was different? She was virgin. So this was even more different. And Mary makes the point. She says, how will this be? Since I am a virgin. That wasn't how the other stories go. That isn't how the other stories go. But the messenger explains this angel. He says, the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The angel explains it. And so there's a lot that goes on in this story. But we see how it connects, first of all, to this bigger story of what's going on in the Bible. And so the question we ask ourselves, so in the creed, when we say this, we started off saying, I believe. And it says, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. What is it we're encouraged to affirm and believe? Why this line? Mary asks, how? How's this going to happen? She knows how babies are made. She says, I haven't been with a man yet. This, this isn't how it works. And the messenger says, what? The Spirit, Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In other words, where's the baby coming from? The power of God. The power of God. In other words, what this story is reminding us is this is God at work, that God is the one who authors salvation. Jesus doesn't come up on the scene, look around and say, eh, I think I should save the world. But instead, God starts from the very beginning and says, I am the one who's going to initiate this work. This can't happen unless God works and acts, that God starts and begins it. And so that's the first thing as we think about conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, is this is God at work in the world. This is a reminder that God is the one who saves. It also reminds us that salvation is more than forgiveness. Salvation includes forgiveness, but it's more than that. Anyone know where the Holy Spirit shows up first in the Bible? Page one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what? The Spirit was hovering over. So the Spirit is part of creation. And so, again, remember how I talked earlier on about how the creed is this time to like, we click on these words. And so we see conceived by the Holy Spirit. We say, oh, wait a minute. What do we know about the Spirit? And so we can click on Holy Spirit. We can start to dive deeper. And one of the things the Spirit does is the Spirit is involved in creation and bringing new life. Because when God makes man, when he makes Adam and he forms him out of the dust of the earth, he breathes. And that same word breathe, breath, ruach in Hebrew is the breath. The Spirit is poured into him. So the Spirit is about creation and new life. And so when it says in the creed, we believe that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, we're saying this is about God's new world becoming real. This is the way theologian Michael Bird says it. He says, the birth of Jesus is the first sign of a new world being born, a new age dawning upon our own, a world pregnant with anticipation and hope finds itself in the final throes of labor pains as it receives the gift of new spiritual life from heaven in the person of the Christ child. The birth of Jesus is the first sign of a new world being born. So when we say he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, we're saying God is making all things new. And it begins in the life of Jesus. And you think, wow, all this from this one little line. We can say more. 
The next thing we think is Jesus' life begins with the power of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't like, the Holy Spirit doesn't just help Jesus become more than just like step to the side and say, okay, Jesus, you got this. In fact, the life of Jesus is a life of Jesus depending on the Holy Spirit. Jesus, later in his life, he's baptized. And when he's baptized, the Gospels describe Jesus coming up out of the water and what? The Spirit descending like a dove onto Jesus. And then after that, the Scripture tells us that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. In other words, Jesus was following the leading of the Spirit. And in one of Jesus' first sermons, he opens the scroll to Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And so there's this consistent reminder that Jesus' life, that the Holy Spirit is central to the ministry and life of Jesus. He's led by the Spirit. So when we say conceived by the Holy Spirit, we click on that, we open that bag, Holy Spirit, we say, there's a whole lot more here going on. There's a whole lot more going on. All right. And then born of the Virgin Mary. And I, one of the theologians I was reading, he, I like the way he pointed out, he said, well, you always talk about the virgin birth. Really, virgin conception is a better term, but that doesn't roll off the tongue quite as easily, does it? So the virgin, the virgin birth, the virgin conception. But what does it remind us about that Jesus is not simply a holy man. That it's attempting to like, oh, Jesus, some people will say, well, yeah, I like Jesus. Jesus is a good guy. I mean, most people I know, if they read the stories of Jesus, most people have a favorable opinion of Jesus, of the things he taught and the things he did and the things he said. But when we say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, we're saying that he's not simply a holy man. He wasn't simply a good guy. We're saying he was conceived by the Spirit. In other words, he's the pre-existent Son of God. But he's also born of Mary, and so he's fully human. So he's fully human, fully divine. 100% human, 100% divine. Now, those of you who know math, no, that doesn't work very well, does it? And this was one of the things the early church struggled with, was trying to figure this out. And ultimately, like other things that we believe, what they could say is what we don't know as opposed to how we know it. It's kind of like the Trinity. I've said before, you can't explain it. We can say truths about it. But what the early church struggled with is how do we define this? But we can say he was fully man and fully God. And it wasn't a matter of like, well, sometimes he was God and sometimes he was human. Like when he was crying and he needed his diaper change, that's human Jesus. When he heals somebody, walks on water, that's divine Jesus. No. Every moment, every act is all God, is all Jesus, is all human. And so the major heresies, the struggles of the early church, and we won't go, there's Apollinarism and Nestorianism and all these different, had these different ideas about who Jesus was, and they mixed this up, and they tried to make it a little less because they said, well, no, no, he, he maybe he's just kind of God. Or maybe once in a while he kind of sets aside being God, or maybe he's just got a little extra God inside him. But when we say conceived by the Holy Spirit, but we're saying, no, he's all God, all man. And this is one of the struggles that I said before. When we confess we believe this, we're setting ourselves apart from other, what we would call cults. So, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, they put Jesus as, he's a good guy, he's a man, he's a little above other people, but he's not God. But the creed says, no, he's fully God, fully man. He's not less than that. So when we confess the creeds, we're not just saying 
that Jesus is a special teacher or somebody touched by God, but fully human and fully God. Human born of a woman, but fully God. In other words, so when we see Jesus, we see what God is like. So when we say he's fully, we're seeing what God is like. And so Jesus tells his followers, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the full fullness of God in all things. But he's also human, which means he knows what it's like to live the lives we live. And we're going to talk more about this next week when we talk about the line suffered under Pontius Pilate, about Jesus can understand and associate with all that we go through in life. So we've got all these things going on, but fully God, fully man. And those two things are held together. And all this, out of that one little phrase, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of Virgin Mary. Last significance of this phrase. And then we'll kind of wrap it up. So, is that this marks the beginning of God's victory over Satan and the powers. So again, if we go to the beginning and the end of the Bible, at the beginning of the Bible, we talked about this, this story of God creating man and woman. And then they fall into sin and there's this whole thing with a serpent and stuff. And then God says... In Genesis 3.15, this is he's speaking to the servant. He says, after he's cursed him, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So God announces at the very beginning to the serpent, to the dragon, to the Satan. He says, there will come a time when the seed of the woman, which is interesting, he says the seed of the woman because it was a patriarchal society. And whose seed was it? It was always the seed of the man. But here he says the seed of the woman, which now we come to Jesus, born of a woman without a human father. And so the seed of the woman will crush your head and you'll strike his head. And so if you want, somebody pointed this out to me a, great, a while ago, was thinking about Christmas now. When you think of how Christmas cards are decorated and what sort of things are on there, and you think of a picture of the birth of Jesus, what does it usually look like? What do the pictures look like? There's, I mean, there's, there's a manger, or maybe there's a cave, or there's, you know, Mary, maybe she's dressed in blue or dressed in some other color, and it's, it's kind of this scene. So I'm going to read to you another story and see if you've ever seen this on a Christmas card. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Okay, how many Christmas cards with dragons and pregnant women and like 10 headed, what was it? We got seven headed, seven headed, 10 horned, seven crowned dragons. Anybody? Christmas ornament on your tree? But what's this story about? This is from the book of Revelation, chapter 12, which I know, bizarre book, kind of trippy, all kinds of crazy things going on. But nevertheless, as we read that story, and it talks about a birth to a son, a male child who rule all the nations, and this is quoting from Psalm 2, and this picture of God 
introducing this one, but a real unusual thing. But it's the story of how God defeats the powers. It reminds us that it is God who initiates and does all this and wins the battle. So when we think of Jesus being born, it's the beginning of this victory, that there's been this war, unseen war between good and evil going on. We know who wins. God wins in the end. But Jesus' birth is the beginning of that victory. And even this thing. So maybe it's something you can create. I wonder if you want to start an Etsy store or something and create like the dragon, dragon and woman Christmas cards and see how well they sell. And if you do, I'd like 10% of the credits, please. Okay. <laughs> but, but here's this great, this amazing picture of what's going on. So when we read the line in the Apostles' Creed, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, we might also picture that scene. That it's not simply this idyllic scene or maybe this scene of a woman giving birth to a child, but it's this scene of God defeating the powers of evil. That this child who was born is the one who will crush the head of the dragon. The child who God talked about at the very beginning in Genesis 3 when it says, and you will strike his heel and he will crush your head. And that's what it says that happens at the birth of Jesus as it's described in Revelation chapter 12. All right. So let's wrap this up and think about this. So we have these lines, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. One, it connects us to the larger story of the Bible. It reminds us of all that's going on, that God does wonders and miracles, oftentimes through women who are expecting and have been unable to have children. And so as we read this story, we think, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, it's a reminder that God works in and through history, in and through stories, and in and through people. And this is a significant moment in that story, so we ought to sit up and pay attention. Second, it reminds us that God is the one who initiates and is the author of salvation. That God is the one who acts. And Mary and Joseph don't decide to have a baby and say, hey, you know, what should, you know, ask Jesus, what do you want to be when, you're, when you grow up? I think I want to be the savior of the world. Okay, we can work on that. We can get you into a charter school. We can get, raise you. No, this is God at work bringing about his salvation. It also helps us see the work of Jesus as the world being made new. That the Holy Spirit who was at creation and makes all things new and, and breathes life into the world as Jesus is born, it's the beginning of God making all things new. It points us to the critical role of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. That the Spirit is involved in all the life of Jesus. It clarifies who Jesus is. That he's fully God and fully man. That when we talk about Jesus, we're not just talking about a good teacher. We're not just talking about a good example. But we are talking about the one who is the eternal pre-existent son of God. But he's not just this spiritual ghost floating around, but he's fully human. Experienced the same emotions, the same pains, the same sufferings, all the same things that we do. And it marks the beginning of God's victory over Satan and the powers. That this promise of the serpent's head being crushed starts with the birth of Jesus in this fantastic picture of the, the child being born and crushing the head of the dragon. So, while it just shows up in a few verses, it's not just an obscure doctrine, but it's something we can affirm and declare. 
that we can say, we believe this. And when we say we believe it, we can put our trust and our hope in it. That we can put our trust and hope that God is the one who is the author of salvation. That God is the one who brings hope and new life. That God is writing this story. That God is crushing the powers of sin and evil. So when we stand later and confess these words of the Apostles' Creed together, keep those things in mind. That's what we believe. That's what we affirm. And that's where we can put our hope. And when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That the one whose hope we put, the one who we put hope in, the one whom we trust, the one whom we love, is the eternal Son of God, bringing about God's plan of salvation to crush the powers of evil. And that's the good news, that that's the one we put our trust in. Amen.